In Matthew 19, we will find there an interaction, if you will, a confrontation between the Lord Jesus Christ and a group of Pharisees, lawyers. I want to begin reading at verse 1 and read through verse 9. Hear now the word of the living God. Now, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For for this reason, a man shall not leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, or shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore God is joined together. What What therefore God is joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And there ends the reading of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, divorce is one of those topics that seems to raise the hackles of many Christians. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's at all important to, to, to address the looseness or at least the, the flippancy that often unbelievers, uncommitted Christians have toward divorce. That's, a, I think, a given. We know that outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing but the pursuit of lust. And whatever can satisfy that lust, facilitate that lust, or in any way accommodate that lust, well, that seems to be the norm of those who could care less about anything spiritual or religious. Nevertheless, our discussion and focus this morning is about the church body itself. There's a wide range of views about divorce, and I do not plan this morning to tackle every view, expound on every view, or even touch or familiarize you with every view. That's something you can do on your own. There are multiple books written to that effect. The purpose this morning is that the purpose that I want to address this morning is more than anything clarity about divorce itself. Now, let me share with you, this is a topic that's not new to me. It's been a topic that I have spent years thinking about. I actually served uh, 
On behalf of our denomination, I served with other ministers on a divorce committee at one time in order to study and to look at this topic and to come to some conclusions. And this was many years ago. And it's been something that I've thought about. It is something that I've wrestled with in the Word of God. It's been something that has been on my mind and heart, trying to reconcile one portion of God's Word with another portion of God's Word in order to make sense so that I might be a faithful minister of the gospel and give to God's people faithful counsel. I take that seriously along with thousands of other ministers who take that seriously. So there are a wide variety of views within the Christian church about divorce. Some are loose. That's the only term I'm going to use to describe it. And some are strict. The question for us is, what does Scripture say? What does Scripture teach? What does Scripture, how does Scripture help us in understanding such a sensitive and such a topic that is subject to cause a lot of argument? And that's what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to open up this text that I read and just point out some things hopefully clarifying some of what I believe to be and what you should study is the biblical position. Now, I want to make a comment relating and connecting what we're going to say to the previous sermon. If you haven't listened to the last week's sermon, I encourage you to do so. Because the first thing that I want to do in laying the groundwork for the exposition of this text is recognize that the Old Testament teaches a number of things about marital relationships. And of course, there are some who believe that these mosaic case laws are binding upon the professing believer today as Rules of morality. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to tell you right now, and I want you to hear this come out of my mouth, the Mosaic case laws are not binding upon the church today as they were given by Moses. Moses has no authority in the Christian church. Those laws, as taught by our confession of faith, were given to Israel particularly and are not binding upon us except for that general equity. And this is important. Listen to this paragraph. Again, I want to teach you how to handle your confession and teach you how to handle the Word of God. Listen to what the confession says in chapter 19. It says, Beside this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, His graces, His actions, His sufferings and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse, uh, diverse instructions of moral duties. Okay? That's 
considering the case laws. I mean, the ceremonial law. But listen to what it says about these judicial case laws that divorce would fall under. To them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which expire together with the state of that people. So what's our confession say about those judicial laws? They're expired. When did those laws expire? When did those mosaic, when did the binding nature of those mosaic laws expire? When Israel ceased being a people. When did that happen? A.D. 70. Not obliging any other now. You see what our confession says? Not obliging any other now. Further than the general equity thereof may require. And that's what we're going to look at. I point this out, brothers and sisters, because some, some of these groups that, well, in fact, I would say all of the groups that, have, have, that are now advocating this polygyny, this lifestyle of polygamy, where do they go to justify their actions? Where do they go to justify this lifestyle? They go right to these judicial case laws. But these laws are not binding. And these laws are being used in a moral specific way to bind wives to these situations and circumstances. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the Christian Protestant position. Whether you read the Baptist Confession, whether you read our Westminster Confession, which was not denominational specific to begin with, or whether you read the Church of England, the 39 Articles, or whatever the case may be, you will find that there is a consensus that these Mosaic case laws are not further binding on any Christian today other than the underlying moral equity of it. Now this is important. I don't mean to speak over your head or to give you too much to consider. You will have to keep up. couple of things. Number one, I want to teach you this morning, or at least I want to attempt to show you this morning, that marriage is a solemn commitment, but it is not sacred. It is solemn. It is serious. It's a covenantal relationship. It is something to be handled carefully and, and with prudence and wisdom. It is something that needs protecting. It is something that needs fostering. It is something that needs great attention at times. So I want that to be number one. It's serious. Now, brothers and sisters, anytime you make a vow or you, you, you make a vow as God as your witness and as others that witness your promises made to another por- a person, don't you see that as serious? Second, thing I want to underlie this teaching of Matthew 19 with is that marriage is not some heavenly concept. Now what I mean by that is this, there is this Christian notion and idea that God has from the beginning, if it, as it were, attached two spirits together and therefore in God's providence these two spirits come together in this life and therefore it's God ordained, God connected, and no man should tear it asunder. The Bible nowhere teaches that. The Bible nowhere teaches is that every marriage is made in heaven. It doesn't teach it. Find me the place. 
Now, we can use that statement, but only in a very broad sense. That is, God has brought us together. God has made for me a wife or a husband and and all of these characteristics, right? A believer, a faithful believer, a committed believer, somebody who is serious about their faith because there are rules and there are uh, there are rules that a believer that the church and through the Apostle Paul has given that believers cannot break. That is, it's unlawful. It is sinful for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. And for a Christian to marry a non-Christian is to bring to them great hardship and misery. There's just no way the two are going to be able to walk together. There's no way that Christian is going to be able to be faithful to God with a spouse that doesn't care about God. Impossible. Here's what I mean by this heavenly. Take your Bibles and turn a few pages over to 22, Matthew 22. Here's what I want to show you. Matthew chapter 22, verse 23. Jesus says, On the day, on that day, some Pharisees who, who, who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother or next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, and left a wife to his brother. The second, the third, the seventh, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase the rest of it for sake of time. And the last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? Now that's the question Jesus has asked. In heaven, who is this woman going to be committed to out of the seven brothers? For they all married her, they said. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken. Not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they will neither marry nor are, nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. What Jesus is saying is, when he uses this statement like the angels is heaven, what, what do we find in the scriptures about angels? They are at God's beck and call. They are at the service of God, and they seek to serve God with a tremendous amount of passion and fervor. When God says go, what do they do? They go. When God says come, what do they do? They come. And when someone blasphemes the name of God, they are ready to take care of business. Now what God is saying is, they're going to be like that. They're going to be solely committed to me in heaven. There's no more, no longer a commitment needed in heaven between husband and wife. Now let's go back to Genesis Two. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Brothers and sisters, in Scripture, there are only a handful of marriages that I would say are divine. That is, orchestrated perfectly by God for a particular purpose. Number one, Adam and Eve's one of them. God created Adam. He told Adam, he's not good for man to be alone. He shall make him a helper and a helpmeet for him in order that he might carry out the dominion mandate. And this helper came what? From his side, not his foot, nor his head. She's not to be above him. She's not to be under him. She's to be beside him. 
That's divine. Adam didn't ask for a wife. He didn't know what a wife was. He had named the animals. And God gave him a wife. The other heavenly ordained marriages would be seen in the lineage of Jesus. Jacob sending out his servant to find him a wife. He comes to the well. There's a prophetic announcement. The Lord, give my, give my boy a bride. We have Joseph and Mary, right? There is something ordained about that relationship that Joseph was betrothed to her. She became pregnant by the Holy Spirit, conceived the, the Lord Jesus Christ within her womb. And what was Joseph going to do? Joseph was going to put her away secretly, but the Spirit came to Joseph and said, no, don't do that. She's not been unfaithful to you. She is pregnant with the Messiah. She has come under the shadow or the influence or the power, the, the energizing, life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. And she conceived. Well, God doesn't need marriage to have children, but yet He has ordained in His wisdom to what? Create a relationship between a man and a woman as our confession says and in Perfect harmony with Scripture for what? Children in help. We don't need to bear children in heaven. And we won't need help. The point being, brothers and sisters, is that if you have a too sacred view of marriage, then you're going to take what Jesus says, let no man tear asunder. You're going to take it that there's no reason, no legitimate reason for divorce at any point at any time ever. And I have talked to some of these people. Let me say this. Nor does the Bible favor one gender over the other in its teaching. I know there are some misconceptions concerning uh, gender roles. There are roles. There are God-ordained roles. There are God-ordained duties that the husband has, the wife has. But when it comes to favoritism, the Lord cannot be guilty of favoritism. Favoring one over the other as we shall see. My last point before we get to the text. I'm on schedule. Last point. As an introduction. That the marriage that we have as husbands and wives have with it a typical, typological nature to them. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5. That is, I'm not stressed that marriage is terribly important. And, and I would say this even about the importance of marriage. Any society, any culture that minimizes marriage, the need for marriage, the use of marriage, and the breaking of marriage are cultures that typically over time fragment and disintegrate. That is this, cultures that support, foster, protect 
the biblical understanding of marriage are cultures that typically thrive, are cultures that typically uh, uh, thrive economically, socially, in, in every aspect. Okay? Ephesians 5, look at verse 22 and following. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such things, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So here's a passage of Scripture that lays out some duties between a husband and a wife, but notice how Paul ends the text. He quotes Genesis 2, the same passage Jesus quoted, and what does he say? He says, I am teaching you these duties, I'm teaching you these things with a spiritual emphasis. What's the spiritual emphasis? So that we would look at our human relationship between husband and wife and see that and learn something about our spiritual relationship with Christ and the body of Christ, the church. Now I want you to think about this. Paul says in verse 32, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What Paul, I mean, again, let me emphasize it again so you get it. Paul is saying this human, this, this solemn human relationship, this covenant has a far greater value than just having children, loving one another, and, and being in a committed relationship. It, there's a spiritual, mysterious spiritual significance to it. That is, how we treat one another has a spiritual reflection upon Christ and His relationship to His bride. Okay? Why is that important? Well, brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. When has Christ ever forced anybody to believe in Him? When has Christ, as our husband, ever forced us to believe and trust in Him? Where does Christ force us to remain in the church? Where does Christ ever force anyone to go against their will and, and to serve Him if we don't want to? Nowhere. Our complete commitment to Christ is free. It's voluntary. 
We serve Him because we love Him. We serve Him because we believe and trust and rest in Him. We, we, we know that He is the Son of God. Let me, let me give you another example. Turn to Joshua 24. Joshua brings this out. As he is dying, he's going the way of his own fathers, and he is leaving Israel that he has served as their leader, and now he does something interesting and related to their relationship to God, and that is, he says, to this day do what? Choose whom you may serve. Joshua 24. Look at Joshua 24, 15. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus has forced no one to worship Him. He has forced no one to serve Him. We come out of our own free will and volition to love, serve, and and walk with Him and, and keep His commandments. And Joshua understood this even back in the Old Testament when he said in verse 15, If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which our fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land we are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 2 Timothy 2. Turn there with me. Just so you see the continuity between the Old and New Testaments. 2 Timothy chapter 2, before I read it, listen to me. If Christ in the church is to be a model for us, husbands and wives, then that should make our marriages serious, solemn. We don't take them lightly. We don't just choose one's, one person and knowing that, well, if I don't like them in a month or two or in three months or three years, I'll just cast them off and get me someone else. That's nothing new. That's exactly what was going on in the Old Testament. That was exactly what was going on among the people of God. Exactly. That's what Jesus had to deal with the question. It was a problem. Why was it a problem? Because people are sinful and hard-hearted. And they don't take serious relationships seriously. Just as many Christians don't take their relationship with the Lord seriously. Okay? We make a profession of faith today and we just walk away and we live how we want to live and we just expect God to overlook it. But let me ask you this. Could a marriage work that way? Could you go and be married to someone and walk any way you want to and not being concerned about whether or not they are pleased by it or not? You would think, absolutely not. And yet, this is what Paul is teaching us about our spirit, the spiritual realm. Look at what Paul says in Timothy. Look at chapter 2, verse Eight, read the context. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned, he says. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, are the elect 
so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Now this is a trustworthy statement. Notice what he says. If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. The point being that Paul is teaching us this conditional aspect of this covenant. Brothers and sisters... If you don't want to serve the Lord, walk away. Now you will reap the consequences of it, no doubt. But nobody is, the Lord is not causing and forcing you to serve Him. Now, I want you to let that sink in. Because when you get up and you come to church, you're like, well, I have to. That's not the right attitude. When we adopt the attitude with our husbands and wives, well, I have to do this. Yeah, I'm married. The marriage is the marriage is in trouble. When we serve our Lord like that, our relationships are in trouble. Our relationship with the Lord is in trouble. Y'all ready to get on to divorce? Because now it's all going to make sense. Let's look at Matthew 19. Before we turn to Matthew 19, and I'm just going to read from a place out of the Old Testament, because there are some that would say, well, you know, divorce is never, you know, or, uh, to take divorce and to make it so hard and difficult, if you will, because it is sacred, sanctimonious, if you will, and it should never, ever, ever be broken. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, listen to the prophet Jeremiah, says, and when I saw that all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery. Now, the Old Testament people of God were considered his wife, the wife of God. So the prophet points out their backslidden adultery. I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So we have a place in the Old Testament where the prophet speaks of God divorcing Israel because of, their, because of Israel's apostasy and adultery and turning their backs on Him and not serving Him as His people. Now believe it or not, some polygynists use this text to claim God was a polygynist. God had two wives, Israel and Judah. <laughs> you remember last week I said that their exegesis is about like a 10-year-old? The point with this text is not to point out two wives. The point of the text is to demonstrate that Israel was one people when God married them at Mount Sinai. One people. Due to sin, what happened? They broke up. God didn't marry two wives. God married one. And these polygynists, these, these, these men and women that are trying to justify this sinful lifestyle need to think about that. They really need to spend 
a good bit of time praying and listening to men that know how to handle the Word of God. In fact, I would say this, the Mosaic Law points out that a man was forbidden to marry sisters. Forbidden. Why would it be, why did Moses see the wisdom in forbidding the marrying of sisters? Can you imagine being married to two sisters? The conflict, the struggle, the jealousy, the backbiting, the temptation to sin, and I mean sin and bitterness, to sin and hatred, to sin and in, in, in revenge, all of these things. And what's, that's what we see in these polygamous relationships of the Old Testament. We see sin. We see sin. The seventh commandment, Exodus 20, verse 14, Deuteronomy 5, 18, Thou shalt not commit adultery. This is a moral positive law and it supports everything that I've already said to you, brothers and sisters, that in this law, one sin is pointed out, adultery, as a metaphor for all kinds of sexual uncleanness. It's not simply adultery. It's all kinds of of sexual sins could be involved in this where our God commands us not to be unchaste but to be wholesome in our thoughts, wholesome in our speech. Watch the way we joke around. Wholesome in our eyesight. Wholesome in the things we approve of. Wholesome in the things we desire for ourselves and for others. The underlying moral foundation, that is, it's a moral positive law because we've already seen that marriage is not at all Heavenly or divine in the sense of it flowing out of God's person. Marriage is not needed. In God's wisdom, He instituted marriage. In God's wisdom, for the sake of a holy seed, for the sake of mutual help, for the sake of compatibility and companionship, He said, yes, a man shall leave his family and be united to his wife and become a one flesh relationship. Out of God's wisdom, marriage is introduced. To the world. As being that ordained relationship by which there is the only sexual context. Sex is relegated only to one relationship. And that is the marriage covenant. Period. Anything outside of that is sinful and immoral. The underlying moral natural law that 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 undergirds this commandment of, of, of chastity and uh, a forbidding of adultery, brothers and sisters, I think is fidelity. Why? Because fidelity flows out of the nature of God. It's that moral, natural law. It's God is, what does God consider Himself? Faithful. Fidelis, I'm a faithful husband to you. I'm faithful to you. What did Paul say in the text we just looked at? If you're unfaithful, God remains faithful. God is faithful to His promises, to His Word, to His covenant. God is faithful to His people to love them, to chasten them, to protect them, and to bring them to glory. And what God is saying in the seventh commandment is that we ought to be faithful in our commitments and promises. Starting with marriage, don't be an adulterer. 
Don't be unchaste. And this forms the background of what Jesus is doing here. Let's look at the text and begin to open up this text. Let's look at the question, Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testifying or testing Him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now Jesus has asked the question, This question culturally was a a debated point in Jesus' day and had been for some time. There were two schools of thought related to this. One loose, one strict. So they thought they would come and test Jesus with this question. It wasn't uncommon to test prophets at all. They were called to test prophets. But that's not the point here. This idea of testing Jesus is, it carries the idea of getting him in trouble. Causing some type of angst and negativity surrounding Jesus so the crowds would not follow him any longer. And that's what the text points out. That large crowds were following Jesus. They were listening to Jesus. He carried weight. He carried weight. So they come and they ask him a question that's debated in their time. And they want to see how he's going to handle this. But notice the question itself. Let's spend a moment there. The question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? A a better translation of the text itself at that point would be, can a husband put away his wife for whatever reason he chooses? That's the idea. Well, what do we know? We know that that's not at all acceptable. We know that that was not a known point, but that had been something that had sort of begun to occur. That is, for example, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 24. Maybe I've got the wrong place here. The question that they bring up to Jesus is, what's valid? Look at Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another's wife. We're just going to stop there. Verse 1 gives us what would be considered by Moses as a valid divorce. He finds some indecency in her. There is something that is unpleasing. Uh, there is something sexually unclean about her. That's the, that's the Hebrew terms there. So what we already see is the broadening of the question itself. They already understood what Moses said. But notice where Jesus goes. Jesus doesn't go in His answer to Moses. What does Jesus do? 
Jesus goes straight to the beginning. Look at verse 4. Look at his answer. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he created them from the beginning, made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two and, and the two shall become one flesh or one home, one house. Jesus tells them, he goes back to the beginning, he quotes Genesis 2, and he says that they don't understand Moses because they don't understand the marriage commandment in the beginning. We obviously have here the broadening of what might be considered a valid divorce. Why? Why is it, why is it needed to broaden that law? What do men want to justify? Their sin. And you know what? Here's, here's the thing about spiritual men or, and women. A lot of times we want to make the Bible say what we want it to say. So what they did was they took that term indecency and they made it so broad it included everything. From burning my bread, you not cooking my supper, not sweeping the house properly, not cleaning the house, not washing my clothes. They made it so broad that it gave, quote, legal, legal, what's always legal is not always right, grounds for divorce. So they broadened that term to encompass everything. And Jesus doesn't start with Moses. He goes back to the beginning. He wants them to go back to the beginning and think, why did, why, why did I institute an ordained marriage to begin with? For the mutual help of the dominion mandate. For man to have a companion. The woman had the companion. Even though she was created for him. She would have him as a companion. For there to be a spiritual seed. While God is interested in our children. That we raise our children in the name of the Lord. He goes back to the beginning. He talks about how the Lord in His wisdom, or or that God in His wisdom ordained marriage for the mutual help for the dominion mandate. That it had a spiritual purpose. We've already looked at Ephesians 5. Don't let that pass away. Think about it. And so Jesus answers and He said, look, this wasn't so in the beginning. This was ordained to be the way it is. But something happened since then. What happened? Look at their answer in verse 7. And they said to him, Then why did Moses command, uh, command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now they, they quote Scripture back to Jesus. Jesus uses Scripture and the Pharisees come back with Scripture and they come back with Deuteronomy 24. Because what they're saying is, Well, listen, Jesus, if, if that's true, then did Moses sin by giving man the right to give a certificate of divorce? You see how they're doing? They're playing Jesus. So are you saying Moses sinned? Because he commanded us, he commanded the man to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Look at what Jesus says. And this is the problem. This is the problem with divorce in general. Verse 8, and he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it, was, it has not been 
this way. You see what Jesus just did? Jesus said, you don't even understand Moses because you don't understand what God intended from the beginning. You're using Moses to justify your sinfulness. And just as these men that I preached against or these groups that I preached against last week want to use the law of Moses to justify their sin. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. Do you think you're held less accountable to God's Word than the Old Testament believers are more accountable? That's a good question to answer. Did David have all the light that you have? Moses have all the light you have? Abraham have all the light you have? Mm -mm. Saul? Solomon? Mm -mm. Let's look at one passage and then we'll continue. Hebrews 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and it's, the, it's full of this, but I'm only going to read one text for the sake of time. Or chapter 2, I mean, look at verse 1. For this reason, and notice what he says. He's talking about this greater salvation, this greater time of Christ, this full revelation that Christ has now brought to the world and to the church through the apostles, through his own personal walking the earth and, and the, the apostles themselves. He says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. So what does the author of Hebrews, look at the argument he presents. He says, listen brothers and sisters, if the Old Testament believers did not escape the just punishment of God based on what they knew and understood, how much more do you think you will with this fuller, greater, brighter revelation in Christ? His point is this, if they didn't escape with a lesser light and revelation, you will not escape with the fuller. Okay? So we need to be very careful as we sit on this side of Christ and we look and we judge these Old Testament saints and we speak, oh well, they did it, God didn't really do anything you know, major with it, so I think I'll do it too. You better be very careful about that kind of reasoning and logic. Now, brothers and sisters, I have sought to bring some clarity here. Let's continue to what Jesus said. Jesus points out the hardness of their hearts. He said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus perfectly answers the question and He agrees with Moses. Who's the question about? Look at verse 2. Or look at verse 3. Pharisees came to Jesus testing Him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? What's the question about? It's about the man. 
What does Jesus, how does Jesus answer the question? He answers it in perfect harmony. Who's Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to Pharisees. Where did, what time frame did these Pharisees live in? In the first century. What were they under? The Mosaic Law. They were under the law of Moses. And Jesus says you don't know Moses because you don't know what God's intention was from the beginning. And let me tell you this. What Moses says is true. He only permitted you to have a divorce because of your hardness of heart. Not because God willed it. Not because God wanted it so. But God accommodated sinful men for the sake of peace and purity. And allows divorce for the protection of the woman, for the protection even of the man. You see, the woman had a broader range of reasons she could divorce than the man. But that's not the question Jesus has asked. In Exodus 21, and I'm just going to mention it for the sake of time. We're already at 48 minutes. Jesus is not asked about general about divorce in general. He's asked specifically. Because what's on the mind of the Pharisees? Can a husband put away his wife for whatever reason? It's pretty, pretty interesting, isn't it? Who do you think they're interested in? They're interested in what gives them validity for divorce. When Jesus answers the question, He said, but I tell you this, except for sexual immorality, can a man put away his wife? And which is exactly what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24. If he finds any indecency in her. I told you that phrase referred to what? Sexual things. And Jesus points that out. He said, yes. Moses said a man could put away his wife for indecent things. Immorality. The word there is a broad word Jesus has used to encompass all kinds of sexual deviance. Not just adultery. All kinds. Which means that the man had only one reason to put away his wife. It had to be some type of sexual uncleanness. And Jesus confirms this, which is not what they want to hear. They wanted to hear that a man could put away his wife for any reason whatsoever. They wanted to make that term so broad that if they came home and the toast was burnt, that they could get rid of her. And Jesus says you can't do that. It can't be valid. Valid. Though it happens. I want to end with this. And I want to be, I really think I need to deal with the aspect of adultery. And I may do that in a Bible study when we're talking together. uh, Where Jesus speaks about adultery in Matthew 5. If we turn there quickly, maybe I can do justice in a few minutes to it. If we go to Matthew 5, I want to clear something up in particular. Um, verse 31, he says, And it was, it, it was said, or it has been said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Um, the, 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 the traditional interpretation 
is that if this woman is put away, she's an adulterer, she remains an adulterer all her life, and anybody who interacts with her will become an adulterer too. I think um, Dr. Hamer in this book, God's Divorce, clears that up. I think there is grounds for considering that what Jesus is speaking of here is spiritual adultery which is exactly what he's dealing with with the people of Israel or the people of Judah as he comes to them. And, and, and for this reason, because that's exactly the, the way most of the usage is in the Old Testament is of spiritual adultery. What's a spiritual adulterer? Someone who won't obey God. Someone who puts away his wife for whatever reason other than what is valid, what's he guilty of? Spiritual adultery. He's guilty of spiritual adultery. He's breaking God's law. He doesn't want to... Let me say this, brothers and sisters, when I deal with the hardness of heart. And I'm dealing with church people. It is not uncommon for a church person to harden their hearts to certain aspects of God's commandments. I don't want to do that. I don't want to humble myself to this person. I don't want to forgive this person. You know, when we choose not to forgive or we choose to be bitter or we choose to, when we choose to disobey, are we not hardening our hearts? Are we not guilty of hardening our hearts? Now apply that to divorce. When we divorce for unbiblical reasons and we, gonna, and we choose to do it anyway, what have we just done? What are we, what are we demonstrating at that point? That we have hardened our hearts and have become spiritual adulterers. We're no longer a faithful wife. What does this mean? Let's sum it up. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful about being covenant breakers for sure. We need to consider that the relationships that we have in this life, particularly that of husband and wife, have a greater significance and spiritual meaning attached to them. Often how we treat our spouse is how we think of God and Christ. Okay? That's something we have to wrestle with. You may not agree with it. You may, it may chafe you a little bit, but you need to understand that's what Paul was teaching. And he was teaching that to husbands and wives so that they would have what? Lesser marriages or better marriages? What's the purpose of teaching that for better marriages? That's the purpose of teaching that. So that we would have as our model Christ in his church as our models as husbands and wives. Christ is going to be faithful. Christ is going to be faithful. And Christ will always be faithful to us. But we can deny him and walk away from him and choose not to have him anymore. And so many people do. People leave the church all the time. All the time. Marriage. Sometimes divorce is necessary. I gave the counsel it's okay to divorce in certain circumstances because the Bible gives 
from the Old Testament confirmed in the New Testament, the Bible says there is a valid divorce. And sometimes that divorce is necessary in order to serve God. Look, you have to serve God. You know why you have to serve God? Because that's the moral, natural law. What's the first commandment? Have no other gods before me. You know what that means? That means you cannot have a husband that tell you you cannot worship God. You cannot have a husband that can tell you not to obey God. You, for a woman to say, well, my husband won't let me go to church. You, must dis, you have to disobey your husband and obey God. That your husband does not have supreme authority over you. He has delegated authority over you, not supreme authority. There's only one who has supreme authority over you. And who do you think that is? It's God. Just as the husband, who will oftentimes kowtow to his wife to keep the peace in the home, she's not your authority, ultimate authority. God is. And you must obey God rather than her. But oftentimes, that's difficult. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, what should the believing spouse do? Let them go for the sake of the peace and purity of the church, or for the sake of peace in the home first. So brothers and sisters, divorce is a very serious thing. It's a very important thing. And I hope that we might, even this day forward, think about it in terms of reading our Bibles more carefully, reading our Bibles in context, Old Testament in context with, I mean, the New Testament in context with the Old Testament, the Old Testament in context with the New Testament, and then let Scripture be, as our confession says, the final authority. Let's pray.